Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and every major podcast provider. So if you can't catch the show live, you can download it or simply use our free podcast player on our website, which is www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions for our guests, there are many ways you can contact the show. You can post your question on our wall on Facebook, Skype us, send us a tweet on Twitter to at The Organic View, or simply call into the show at area code 917-932-1068. If you would like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to Chef Mike C. about his best-selling book, Kitchen on Fire, Mastering the Art of Cooking in 12 Weeks or Less. Now, thanks to popular cooking shows such as the Food Network's Chopped, more and more people are taking cooking classes and are also searching for other ways to perfect their skills as they develop their own style. While there are so many books and do-it-yourself videos on the market, there's one particular book that is what I consider the cliff notes of cooking. So in Mike's book, <laughs> Kitchen on Fire, uh, there are step-by-step illustrated directions about everything from understanding how to work with knives, perfecting your knife skills, ingredient definitions, culinary technique definitions, egg anatomy and basic chemistry, conversion tools, tips and tricks, and so much more. So today's show is going to be a lot of fun. Um, Chef Mike is just amazing, and it's just kind of comical how he takes such a wonderful approach uh, to teaching people how to not only how to uh, cook, but to perfect their skills. So I would like to welcome to the show Chef Mike C. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me, June. So great to have you. Uh, Mike, can you tell our audience how did you become interested in cooking? Did you learn from uh, a parent, uh, a neighbor? Who, who got you started? Well, in my family, cooking is quintessential to being able to be in the family. If you can't cook, they basically boot you out. So our parents got us into the kitchen by the time we were like four or five years old. And um, everything from just like cooking basic breakfast to doing entertaining, having the little neighborhood parties or socials, things like that, were super important. Um, And luckily enough, my father's hobby is organic gardening and has been for well over 40 years. So we grew up with just a wonderful array of fruits and vegetables and herbs in uh, my old stomping grounds of upstate New York. So we had this great stuff to play with all the time. It was hard not to be inspired to get into cooking. Um, And then by the time I got into high school, I started realizing, unfortunately, that most of my friends didn't have the same type of upbringing I had. They didn't even know how to boil water, and a lot of their parents couldn't even do macaroni and cheese out of a box. (laughs) And I thought that was really, really sad. Um, And coming from a family of teachers, I knew that if I didn't wind up finding something to teach as a career, I'd be excommunicated. And it seemed like this was a massive problem that needed to be solved. So I decided to get into uh, teaching cooking professionally. And just out of curiosity, what part of upstate New York? Um, I'm from good old Rochester. Wow, that is not just upstate New York. That's all the way upstate. (laughs) Pretty cold up there. Oh, yeah, that's one of the reasons I live in Berkeley now. (laughs) We We have no snow and just great organic produce out here. Now, Mike, uh, where did you go to school? And when you were in school, did you ever think that at this particular point you would actually be in a position where you're teaching so many people all the things that you've learned throughout your life? Well, actually, by the time I went to culinary school and I I came out to California, went to the California Culinary Academy about, oh, it was like 11 or 12 years ago I got out here, Um, I had already been working in restaurants and catering when I was in high school and college. So I came out here with the dream to be able to teach as many people as I can to possibly uh, cook. And the best way to do that was to open a, eventually open a cooking uh, school. So when I was in school, it was even more inspiring. I just noticed like how 
amazing it was when you see the twinkle in somebody's eye when they actually are learning something and it was happening all around me so from there there was no way I could not kind of follow the dream to open a school now tell me about organic living with the hippie gourmet I'm glad you brought that up (laughs) yeah a few years ago I was uh, lucky enough to be the host of uh, the last season, though, for any fans out there, we are talking about starting the show back up in the next year or two. Um, but I was fortunate enough to host Organic Living with the Hippie Gourmet, and it was a super fun show, which we tried to travel around um, all over the U.S., but also internationally to show people that no matter where you are in the world, you could cook organic, healthy, sustainable, sustainable food that's not just good for you but also good for the earth very nice and so why did they wait till the last season i mean what were they thinking they should have had you on the first season (laughs) i thought that too but for the first uh nine seasons of the show they had this wonderful chef uh chef bruce had been doing it but uh that last year he decided to retire and and move on into just more teaching and cooking and catering and and they needed somebody else to do it, and the producers had seen me teaching at a big food festival that we have in Berkeley called Spice of Life and asked me to consider hosting, and I couldn't say no because I'll tell you, you can't reach uh, as many people just in a, a singular cooking school as you can with having a show broadcast to folks all over the place. So it was just such a, a wonderful experience. and. Got to do a lot of um, traveling around uh, the world, and it was really inspiring to see that the organic and sustainable and slow food movements really have a massive foothold in just about every nook and cranny corner of the planet that you can find, and that people, no matter where you go, actually do really care about how their food is grown and uh, produced and having access to good quality ingredients has become so important for people around the planet. And it's such a good thing to see. It's one of those things that keeps you going uh, when you get up in the morning, knowing that there's so many people out there that are on the same oh, mission as you. Now, throughout your travels, um, can you recall a particular trip that you took or a place that you visited where you met someone who may not necessarily have been uh, world-class chef, but someone who showed you something or um, introduced you to a particular ingredient that you just, you know, it, it just really gave you that, that wow, this is something that I'm going to definitely incorporate into my style or an ingredient that I'm going to use from here on out. Yeah, actually, when I was down traveling around uh, New Zealand, I was able to work with a lot of different chefs down there, one of them being uh, an indigenous Maori chef. Um, And we went out and did a lot of traveling out into the bush. And from there, I really started to get more um, into the use of ferns. Um, Went down there, uh, ferns just are absolutely everywhere that you go when you go into the bush and learning which ones are edible was a a really fun trick of you take a leaf and you put it in your armpit and you rub it around in there a little bit and if nothing happens it's perfectly safe to eat if you start getting a little bit of a rash you don't want to eat it um so not necessarily am I going to go out into the woods around here doing that, but you can find a lot of great fiddlehead ferns at uh, some of the local grocers and a lot of times at farmer's markets. So that was super fun. And also my, my favorite new fruit um, that is kind of like, I would say, rosemary to us here in the States where just about everybody has some kind of rosemary Mm. bush growing in their yard or their neighbor's yard. Except for my yard, I cannot grow. uh, Every year that I try, no matter what, um, and I'm a master gardener too. (laughs) I can grow everything else. I could probably grow people if I tried, but just not rosemary. (laughs) I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to send you some of my secret stash. I'll send you some <laughs> out and see if it, see if it grows out there in New York. <laughs> but they have this awesome fruit, and it's actually they've started growing it here 
um, in the state. So it's nice that we can now get it and not have to have uh, it transported zillions of miles. But the thing called a fajoa, it's absolutely amazing. To me, it's a cross between, oh, I wouldn't say necessarily a cross, but it's kind of like eating sweet perfume. It's so floral and delicious. It looks almost like a little kind of like a guava. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And you'll start, hopefully, start seeing them as more um, local U.S. farmers start growing them, be able to start seeing them in farmer's markets and grocery stores out by where you guys are. And what what have you used it for? Uh, I mean, is it more more or less used for desserts, or can you just use it for pretty much anything? Well, I usually do use them in, in desserts for the most part, and I like to put them in, like, crisp or cobblers and Betty's pies, tarts, torts, galettes, just about any anything that you would put apples or pears into has the same type of consistency to it. So they really lend themselves to a lot of different types of preparations. Wow, that's uh, definitely something to look forward to. I mean, it, whenever you talk to people who are just so passionate, just as you are, there's always something that you can learn. I mean, it doesn't matter how skilled you are just the knowledge and just the excitement. Um, I love talking to people that have just done so much traveling and have taken the time to actually work with local people and just understand the local cuisine. And that's one of the things that I found about Europe. Um, If you go to the local areas, each region is known for a particular type of dish, if you will, and uh, I think that's what makes it so charming. Yeah, well, anywhere you go, people really are proud of the food that they have and the cuisines that they've developed, especially when it's based off a lot of the the local indigenous ingredients. That's what makes it so special because it's really particular to that region. And granted, we do have access to so many ingredients when you go into your grocery store nowadays, but how many of them come from different parts of the, the world and are picked at weird times and don't have a lot of flavor? So... You know, when you're going to all these communities and they're cooking with those ingredients that they got right there, the flavors are just so much more, you know, deep and rich that you can get from something that was flown, you know, halfway around the planet so you can conveniently have it at your local store. Oh, of course. Now, how did you wind up working with Chef Oliver Seed, who's the co-author of the book? Yeah, yeah, my business partner, Olive, is is quite a fun and wacky guy. Um, we met, actually, he was uh, one of the uh, co-owners of a really popular tapas bar here in town. Oh, nice. And I had been patroning that once I first moved to Berkeley because it was, as everybody dubbed it, the hippest place in the entire city and became really good friends with him. And as you know, time went on, I had, been, I had been teaching cooking classes from all the way up in Seattle all the way down to San Diego and was pretty much constantly traveling around the West Coast doing it. And as the old adage goes, my arms got pretty tired from flying around so much and decided to look at opening what is now our wonderful pair of cooking schools that we have, Kitchen on Fire, here in Berkeley and needed somebody to do this with, and I needed such a good partner in crime that Chef <laughs> Olive was my natural pick. Yeah, uh, you really uh, put a lot of uh, humor into something that, uh, you know, when you take some of these, well, when I've taken some of these classes, it just makes you wonder, okay, um, do these people really like what they're doing? Uh, but you, so you make boring. it so fun. <laughs> Yeah, you got to have fun. Like we, we throw in the comedy aspect of cooking. Well, because, of course, cooking can always be fun and you can have a laugh while you're doing it. But when you're trying to teach people, you know, things that could be quite boring subjects, as you well know, if you throw in a few laughs to it, people actually start paying attention instead of falling asleep like it was back when they were in college. And you really want people coming to a class to be able to leave with all that knowledge that you're trying to give to them. So, yeah, we happen to ham it up just a little bit of a lot. Now, with everything that's been going on as far as uh, TV 
and uh, just all these different shows that are available. What? How do you feel about the things that you're seeing? I mean, you must be a pretty tough critic when you see some of these shows. I know I've watched a couple of these shows where I'll see whoever the host is do something that I'm just kind of mortified about um, mm-hmm. just because of the fact that um, <laughs> in New York um, you need uh, – you need to have a certification from the Department of Health and Food Safety and Food Handling. And when I see certain things, I just kind of cringe. Um, do you see things like that often as well? Yeah, I actually do my darndest to uh, tune out of some of those shows as time goes <laughs> on because after watching them, you cringe so much. It's like, I can't take it anymore. I mean, uh, for the quick example, not not naming names of these contest-style shows, but a few years back there was a whole group of all professional chefs, and they were asked in a challenge to make aioli or mayonnaise from scratch, which is egg yolk and and oil. That's all it is. And some of these folks were going crazy because they couldn't, you know, they haven't done it by hand since they were in culinary school. And it's one of the easiest, simple techniques to be able to nail. And you have these pros running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And I was like, all right, you've got to be kidding me. But it does happen. That's the interesting thing. Even um, you know, professional chefs either don't know or forget a lot of the basic cooking techniques that are out there. Uh, that's why I actually rewrote the book, is to be able to arm people with the, the knowledge so that if they're called up on the spot when they're on their contest show to make mayonnaise, that they're going to beat the pants off everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, I really do think that if you have an, a teacher that really drums a particular style um, in your head, it's it's hard to uh, undo that. And... Um, I know from working with uh, several friends who have taught at uh, some of the world-class institutions, um, you know, the instructions are, are, or the instructors, rather, are pretty diligent in their efforts. And it, I guess over time, if the person that is, uh, I, I guess, in the spotlight for that particular time is kind of out of practice or... Now, they're so used to having someone else in their kitchen do it, uh, mm-hmm. their skills can get rusty. Um, and with your students, how many students do you teach on a weekly basis? Oh, gosh, uh, in the hundreds. Wow. Now, yeah, we, we just actually opened our second location uh, last month because we were fortunate enough to be at the point where our classes were overselling and we cannot deny the public knowledge on cooking. <laughs> so we, we had to open up the second one, and we run, oh, geez, anywhere between you know, seven and uh, ten or more classes a week. That's a lot. Yeah, so we have lots of students coming through. A lot of repeat people, which is great to see, but also a lot of new faces coming in. There's, when it comes down to it, you know, there doesn't matter what age, gender, your code that you're part of everybody needs to eat so everybody needs to cook oh exactly now the first location where is that located we're actually up in the gourmet ghetto neighborhood of berkeley um <laughs> which got its nickname because it's where uh the that the mecca restaurant chez panisse uh is located and back in the you know early 70s they were one of the driving forces out here uh, the owner, Alice Water, and, and her crew of chefs to bring the farm-to-table movement really to fruition. They were starting to work with all these great local uh, organic farmers that we had out here in Northern California and really bringing their food to the forefront. And from there, it kind of became a hotbed of all these great sustainable food businesses and has been doing that in that neighborhood for the last uh, almost 40 years now. So it's just a super, super neighborhood to be uh, located in. And now the second location, where where are you located with the, the new place? Well, we're just on the opposite side of town over in West Berkeley, and we're attached to this great business called Rocket, which is a restaurant and home cooking supplies. So we have... Nice. 
the store <laughs> right attached to our own business, which is, I got to say, kind of is super fun but also super dangerous. There's nothing like being able to walk out your door and go, ooh, I could use one of those. Ooh, I could use one of those too. So it, it, it's great for our, our all of our students because they have all the uh, – fun equipment that they would ever need to use after taking the classes and it is a kind of culinary Disneyland for us oh I can imagine every day must be Christmas I mean yeah it is in fact I'm, I'm sitting I'm sitting looking through the the show glass windows into the store location right now and um if you would hear, you would see the puddle of drool down at my feet. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, uh, it's interesting. Um, I hate shopping, but if I'm in a garden center, I'm going to look at all the new gadgets for gardening, or I might look at different um, uh, plant specimens, or <laughs> if there's uh, any type of restaurant supply or, or uh, supply shop where they, they sell culinary uh, utensils and whatnot. Yeah, I could spend hours. I mean, it's just fascinating just how many knives are out there. And actually, that's something that you spend quite a bit of time on. Um, I, one of the, I think one of the biggest problems people have is using knives. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you, the, the biggest thing is when you when it come down to think about it, who really teaches you how to use knives? If, if we're lucky, we get a mom, dad, grandma, or grandpa to do it. But unfortunately, for most of them, they're not properly trained in how to use the knife either. Um, and it becomes a very scary tool for most of us then that we have this razor-sharp implement that if we misuse it, we can cut ourselves quite badly in it. So a lot of people not just have poor skills to begin with, but also have that built-up fear in them because they've, they've nicked or you know badly cut themselves a few times. A lot of that comes down to having um, sharp knives. If you can have a sharp and well-honed knife, which means using that kind of long stick that everybody has that comes in their knife block set, that actually gives a little micro serration to the edge of the blade. And that's how, by making it into actually a saw with those little tiny micro teeth on it, that you can cut through those smooth, slippery skin on the tomato, as well as cut through the hard materials like the carrots and potatoes. So by knowing how to take care of the knife edge so it doesn't go out of hone and doesn't go dull, that helps out so much too. And if anything, people just need to pick the right knife for them. Yeah. And all the companies will say that their knife is you know, superior to all the other oh, companies. Of course. <laughs> yeah, but that's not the case. It's kind of like buying a car. You know, you want to have something that's high quality. So, you know, you'll go and do some research and you'll find a couple, couple different models, but you just don't go to the dealer and go, hey, here, I have cash in hand, give me that car. You're going to test drive a few cars, and the one that feels right to you has the bucket seats that caress your rear end the right way, the proper lumbar support, the controls and the steering wheel <laughs> in the right position for you, that's the car you're going to uh, uh, buy. So when you're going to pick a knife, there's so many different types of shapes and sizes and weights and handle materials. The biggest thing is how does, the, how does that knife feel in your hand when you're moving it and doing cutting techniques? That's the only thing that's important. If it's an uncomfortable knife, I don't care how much money it costs or how many people are backing it, it's not the right one for you. I could not agree more. I mean, there are so many knives that are on the market that are super expensive, that promise everything under the sun. And um, it's interesting, The my favorite set of knives is actually, um, it's just a plain set from Wolfgang Puck's line, and uh, it's got a very heavy handle. And uh, it's interesting, I hardly ever cut myself. But what I do... <laughs> Uh, when I'm rushing or if I'm not paying attention, that's when the accidents will happen where I'll either burn myself or the other day I was using a mandolin and I basically got my thumb. Yeah, that that was pleasant. But um, <laughs> I guess in the beginning, yeah, there were a lot of little nicks and stuff, but the uh, last couple of years it's been main, mainly just, you know, random little burns just by touching something, forgetting that, yeah, by the way, I need gloves or a mitt or something. 
But oh um, yeah, that kind of stuff, you know, to protect the hand. I, I'll tell you, I've always thought that I could build up enough callus on my hand to deal with that, but I am sorely mistaken every time I tried to grab a pan. <laughs> yeah. Now, with your students, um, what is one of the common things that they do when it comes to cutting? I'm sure you've seen everything under the sun. I think what's uh, the worst thing that you've seen them do? Well, I'll tell you, the probably is the initial grip on the knife. What a lot of folks do will have, you know, their thumb and the ring finger and uh, middle finger, ring finger, and um, pinky wrapped around the handle, but they'll leave their index finger sitting right up on top of the blade. And over time, uh, it, well, at first it might be comfortable, but definitely over time that is a repetitive motion injury waiting to happen. It's a really odd pressure that rides up the index finger through the knuckle and the like. And a lot of folks down the line get trigger finger or that arthritic condition in the index finger, um, all from holding a knife like that for so many darn years. It's a very poor grip from, from that sense, and also it's not a good way to um, guide the knife properly when you're cutting food so the knife can easily slip or twist in your hand, and that's when you're going to cut yourself. Mm. So utilizing what is called the pinch grip where we pinch the blade right where it meets the handle with your index finger and your thumb, and you wrap the other fingers around the blade. That gives you the best ergonomic and safe grip on a knife. Thank you. Now, the next no question. worries. That's why I'm here, June. <laughs> the next question that I have is, what are your thoughts on ceramic knives? I've seen so many chefs that have said, oh, you know, I, I only use ceramic knives, this and that, and it's like, I don't know. Um... I I can't say that they're awful, um, but they they just have very specific uses. The the problem with ceramic as a material is it's unbelievably hard, which usually typically you might think sounds great for a knife. But when you think of hard materials, one of the ones that comes up is glass, which is really hard like ceramic. If you drop a glass on the floor, it doesn't bounce. They usually break since they're such a hard uh her material. Same thing with these ceramics. If they you drop them on the floor, they can easily break or chip them. Sometimes if you cut through really hard materials improperly, you can chip the edge of the blade. But when it comes into cutting soft materials, like maybe say um, peeling and segmenting citrus fruits or working with herbs or slicing up fish, that's where a knife like that can shine. They do have really nice edges on them but they're just really more for delicate foods. I wouldn't take them to, you know, a five-pound bag of carrots and a big fat sack of onions. They might not be able to make it through quite as well. Mm. Thank you. My next question is when you're working with someone who has a fairly uh, competent background as far as cooking, but they haven't been trained professionally, uh, what are some of the challenges that these folks face? Because, I mean, there are a lot of people out there that are listening to the show today that you know, they, they they cook all the time, but uh, maybe their skills are not quite up to par, or you know, maybe they, they could uh, stand to learn a couple of new tricks and techniques uh, just to make life a lot easier and also to make the food more palatable. What would you recommend to them? Well, I think for a lot of the home cooks out there is really, truly learning cooking technique. Um, that's the difference that makes uh, a cook a cook in a restaurant versus the chef. A cook you can give a recipe to, and hopefully they can you know, read the directions and recreate the same dish every time. But since the chef knows the cooking techniques are actually how to manipulate the food, to come out and get the end result that you're looking for, they can create the recipes in their own head. And I think that's one of the things for accomplished home cooks that have a problem with, they've been using recipes for so many years. And by doing these things over and over again, they have a basic, you know, and a lot of times really in-depth, um, but still basic as far as technique goes, grasp on how to put together the foods they love but not knowing the inner workings of how uh, food is cooked and how technique is applied to the food. A lot of times you could be making that recipe made a hundred times and it doesn't turn out 
right and you don't know why, what went wrong. By knowing technique, first off, you're probably never going to have that problem again with it not coming out right. And if something starts going wrong while you're cooking, you can be able to figure out what it is and troubleshoot it. So that's the one big thing with uh, with accomplished cooks is they've been doing this for so long, but just really want to know, you know, the hows and whys of what goes on instead of just knowing, hey, I can do that recipe. Thank you. And when it comes to ingredients, how do you teach people that have just been accustomed to going into the supermarket, uh, looking at a checklist or just kind of randomly shopping for this, that, the other thing, how do you go about teaching people about selecting quality ingredients as opposed to just the first thing that they see? Well, one of the things that we try to encourage people to do is utilize their local farmer's markets. And not just for purchasing all their food, because not everywhere has farmer's markets all year long. And also Mm -hmm. sometimes uh, the farmer's markets, unfortunately, um, are not priced well enough for everybody to go and do all their shopping for. But if anything, they are one of the best indicators of what is truly seasonal in your area so that when you go to a grocery store, you can say, oh, boy, I just saw those straw. I saw strawberries and raspberries and blueberries at the farmer's market last week. I know when I go into my grocery store that I'm going to be able to get more locally grown uh, berries and strawberries and all of that. That is such a, a huge, huge help because not all grocery stores necessarily label where the foods are coming from. You know, if you know, if there's a big sign, hey, this stuff's coming from Chile, you can be pretty assured that it's not seasonal, so to not use those products until we're getting them more locally grown. I wonder if that's um, a state issue, because I know in New York they must label uh, the the particular product, whether it's uh, produce or uh, any perishable or shelf-stable product, they must label the uh, country of origin. So I don't know if that's something federally mandated or a state-mandated yeah, there's a lot of the states um, that not non-coastal states that are still working those type of bugs out, um, and even in a lot of the states that there are some of those regulations, not all of the stores are necessarily up to snuff with complying with those. So it still can be a little confusing for folks. Uh, but if as long as you're buying, you know, things as local as possible, you know, not only are they going to be the most flavorful but they're going to be the most packed full of nutrition. And you can feel good that you're not harming the planet anymore by having your food transported, you know, three, four, five thousand 5,000 miles away. Thank you. Now, my next question is kind of personal. What is it like to go out to dinner with you? It's <laughs> Do we easy, even go out to dinner? <laughs> it's easy. I want to say this out loud so all my friends who may be listening can hear this too. I am the easiest person to go out to eat with, especially if you invite me over to your house. A lot of people get intimidated. Oh, he's going to be critical and pick me apart. I'll tell you, there's no more enjoyable meal for me than one that is made by somebody in their own kitchen with them throwing (laughs) a little bit of love and their own passion behind it. I can never be critical on that. Just so if you ask me over for dinner, don't ask me to cook. You invited me over to eat. (laughs) That's interesting. I find that usually when people uh, invite me over, uh, they usually tell me to get there a certain time, and it's usually when they're having some type of a a difficulty or something or other, and I wind up uh, giving them a hand and then finishing up. So. Yeah, I wind up doing that a lot, too. Um, so that's why I usually, you know, of course, I'm I'm always, when somebody needs a hand, going to jump in. But I hate going in there and, you know, coming in a little too early, and then you see something going on, you're like, uh, well, you could be doing it this way, and have kind of bite the tongue. Well, what's the worst dish that you had to eat that oh. a friend made? I'll tell you mine. I had a friend that made spaghetti with ketchup sauce. Ketchup for pasta sauce, and oh, she's a friend of the family. This happened actually. It, what was prom- what prompted me to begin teaching, and um, I, everything in the woman's house is all white. She uses cloth napkins. Didn't have a dog that I could try to pawn it off, and I had to eat it. I it was just absolutely disgusting, and 
I had to just eat it with a smile. Oh no. Yeah, that was uh that was uh really I I'm sorry I'm sorry that you you're feeling like this. I mean, <laughs> it sounds like you're still holding this deep inside your psyche, June. I I'm glad that you're releasing it, it right now with me. It's like when my mom used to make me liver as a kid. To this, well, I don't eat meat anymore, but wild horses could not get me to touch that stuff again. But it's just oh, one of those memories that just lives on. Oh yeah. Well, as you were saying that, I I recollected a time I went over to a friend's house and they were having a nice kind of springtime brunch, and they had these herby cheesy scones that they had made. And I was the first one asked to take a bite into them. <laughs> um, and this is a tip for all of you out there that you want to make sure to taste any food before you serve it to your guests. So I took a bite into this thing, and I have everybody you know, watching me. And I realized as I bit into this that they must have substituted sugar for salt <laughs> or had just no idea what they were doing with salt. It was like having a salt lick. I had everything I could do from spitting <laughs> it back out in front of everybody. It was just absolutely awful and have to, you know, kind of choke it down and then go over to the host and kind of take them aside and be like, hey, uh, you might want to check those out. These things are just unbelievably laden with salt. And the, oh, my gosh, I should have checked, you know, tasted the sugar. If it was sugar, it must have been salt. And one of those common, you know, perception is taste your ingredients before you cook with them. Know what yep. you're getting into. Yeah, taste the finished product without a doubt afterwards. And I think yeah, one of the, the or two. yeah, one of the biggest things that I found when I was teaching was that people did not understand how to measure properly. I mean, a cup, an actual cup of liquid is not grab any co coffee cup that you have and you know <laughs> grab the water. And that was one of the things that I found. So. I remember when I taught, I would have little kids to senior citizens get down at eye level and make sure that the measurement that was required was accurate. And I would tell them all the time, you know, uh, especially since the holidays just passed, I remember I had um, uh, another friend of the family that used to make the most delicious-looking holiday cookies. And, you know, really beautiful-looking cookies, but the thing is is that you would taste one bite and immediately you would taste baking soda because Ooh. she didn't mix the um she didn't mix the batter properly and that was always something that you could randomly expect uh you know some sometimes you would get a good cookie but quite often you would get one cookie where it's like you taste that baking soda and it just kind of killed it for you for the rest of the year and so I would constantly talk about that because it's a very effective uh, way to communicate why measurement and mixing properly is really critical to anything that you're baking. Uh, and as you pointed out, tasting it before you serve it. Yeah, and even tasting your ingredients before you cook with them. So many times you have that, say, maybe bell pepper or apple that isn't really flavorful and you're gonna, it's going to be the star of the dish. So if you utilize that, and even though you do everything right, the dish isn't going to have that flavor you're looking for. So, you know, you want to taste your taste, 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 taste all the time you can. In fact, if you, when you're in professional culinary school, you can flunk a class just because you don't taste enough. It's that important. Thank you. My next question is about grilling. Grilling, for some reason, people always tend to associate grilling with, oh, that's the man's job. And you actually um, wrote, wrote some wonderful information in the book about grilling techniques. Uh, and I, I just thought that it would be another great topic to discuss. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the common mistakes people make when they're prepping a grill to cook with? Well, one of the things is, first, letting it heat up enough. Mm. It's not just like when you throw on a, a gas burner flame on your range top at home and you put a pan on top, and you can get a pan to heat up usually within a good minute or so. A grill having so much more surface area of the metal and just a really big cooking surface, 
you need to give that a little bit more time to truly heat up the metal. So it's usually going to be at least a good five minutes. Um, if the metal's not hot enough, you put the food onto it, and a lot of times that is going to not only slow down the cooking, obviously, but it will help the food to actually stick to the grill grates more. Thank you. And do you have any opinions about some of these, um, like, like the George Foreman grills, um, what are your thoughts on them? Well, actually, you know, for years when those first started coming out, I, I didn't think too highly of them. But as time went on, I realized that they're not really a bad tool um, to have at home, especially a lot of us, first off, might not have the grill or might be, you know, living in a small apartment or mm. dorm, and this is the only type of cooking equipment we can have. We still can get a lot of the great grill flavors from one charring the surface a little bit that's what part of the beauty of grilling is is letting just a little bit of the food burn instead of the entire surface a little bit of that nice charred flavor is is really good and kind of like makes a nice complex flavor but if you had uh, the aunt irma like i did growing up who would burn the pot roast with smoke coming out of the oven when you went over to her house (laughs) to eat that's awful completely burn outside is just gross so a little bit's really nice and actually, too, we can still get some of the smoky-style flavors from grilling because part of that is when the, any fats drip off of any of the meats or the, the veggies that you've basted, say, with a little olive oil, what have you, that uh, makes some of the flavorful smoke. So even though you're not cooking over the charcoal briquettes or, or natural woods or using an actual flame underneath with a gas grill, we can still get some of these beautiful grill flavors imparted on the food with something as simple to use as a Foreman grill. What is your favorite marinade to use when you are grilling? Salt and pepper, to be honest with you. Um, I do marinate um, uh, sometimes uh, chicken, and I like to do um, citrus juice marinades. A lot of times using, especially during this time of year when we are really in citrus season, using some more of the exotic uh, flavors, say blood orange or or uh, bergamot orange, uh, caracaras, palmellos, things of that nature, with a lot of fresh, earthy-style herbs like rosemary, sage, thyme, oregano. Uh, those are really fun to put together. Or um, just a really uh, fun balsamic marinade, balsamic, kind of like vinaigrette. I'd like to enhance that with a little bit of a pomegranate molasses, which is basically just a concentrated pomegranate juice syrup. And you can find that in grocery stores all over the place nowadays. You don't have to go to specific ethnic markets to find it. That's something I haven't tried. I I have to try that. That sounds really good. It's lovely stuff, let me tell you. Typically, when I when I grill, I sometimes will use just balsamic vinegar uh, with maybe a splash of extra virgin olive oil. But usually, same thing as you. Um, simple. Salt and pepper. Well, sea salt and pepper. I I tend to prefer to keep it simple. And then, if I want to make some type of a sauce to accompany it, then I'll make that as an option. But I don't like to really um, overdo it. So I like the the natural flavors of the food to come out. Yeah, me you know. too. That's the thing is, again, when it comes down to it, if you're having good seasonal quality ingredients, you can let their flavor shine. It's when we have poor quality ingredients that we really need to jazz them up and exactly. add all the extra stuff to it. So what are your favorite gadgets when you're grilling? Jeez. Well, I'll tell you that I only really use two tools. I use a long pair of of metal tongs, just a basic pair of metal tongs, and also a really big um, flat spatula. Because they have all those really fancy-dancy kind of, you know, er, 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 male (laughs) dad-style grill sets that come out, and it looks like, you know, basically bones from a Trinosaurus Rex <laughs> that they put wood onto and these big sharp teeth and they're almost like weapons. And, uh, and that's where I think uh, the guys get all excited because now they have these big tools to go out the grill. 
unfortunately, a lot of these tools just destroy the food. They're more weapons of war than <laughs> cooking tools when it comes down to it. So I just like a, a basic set of tongs and a, a nice big metal spatula is all I need. Thank you. Yeah, that's, it's, it's always interesting to see what people use when uh, they're grilling. I mean, as you pointed out, there's so many gadgets that are on the market, and every season there's always something new that's supposed to improve the quality of your food, do this, do that. And as you pointed out, pretty much all these things do really is to just destroy the food. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy to to see, you know, how massacred you can take a, a simple burger, like say, you know, slice zucchini and make it into this big weird pile of mush by the time it comes off the grill. That's charred to heck and you can't even distinguish what it was. Just out of curiosity, uh, do you have a kitchen herb garden? Yeah, in fact, I just watered our gardens out front today. And um, during the wintertime here, we go with some of the more hardy herbs. Uh, we have uh, sage, rosemary, thyme, um, a little bit of marjoram going right now, along with some of the kind of, for this part of California, more wintry style vegetables. We have a lot of different types of kales and other types of greens going right now. Wow. So um, do you have a, is it a fairly big garden? Is it, is it part of the school or is it um, there, it's, it's, it's on a smaller side. We have two nice uh, big planter boxes uh, in the entrance to our school. So I have, oh, maybe a total of probably about 20 square feet I'm working with. Do you think so at some point? Not a ton, but enough to get a good wall of the verbs in there. Yeah. Do you think at some point you might incorporate kitchen herb gardening into your classes? Because I know back in the 50s, it's interesting, when you look uh, back, it was very popular to have a kitchen herb garden because it just made perfect sense. I mean, they didn't have the um, ability to transport fresh herbs with what they do today, where you can get stuff from pretty much every corner of the earth. And it was basically a household staple to have something growing uh, in a windowsill somewhere in the house uh, so that it was convenient for whoever was preparing the meals so that they had fresh herbs at their disposal. Oh, we always love to encourage people to start doing these herb gardens at home because they're so simple. You don't even need to have a garden plot outside. You can do this in a planter box if you live in an apartment building. Um, the big thing is just making sure to tend them properly and also depending on season that you have planting the types of herbs that are going to be able to last with the weather or finding if you're in the colder climate finding a good um, indoor system and there's a lot of those out there on the market now that have those nat nice natural like uh, sun uh, full spectrum lights on them that don't cost an arm and a leg so it's one of those things if you're into cooking you can't um, really get away with saying, oh, that's too much work. It's mm. so easy to do, and it's it's fun to be able to really pick something and eat it within, you know, a few minutes instead of knowing that was, even if it's as fresh as possible where you purchased it, it was picked hours, if not days or weeks previous. Now, Mike, I, you have so many different things that uh, unfortunately, we're not going to have time to talk about this book. It's just magnificent. Uh, but one one question that I have is, now that the winter is approaching and more people are eating soup on a regular basis, do you have any tips that you might like to offer our audience as far as how they can improve some of the basic soups that they make? What are some oh, nifty little tips that you, that you have? Boy, do I, June. And the <laughs> first one has to be, making your own stocks from scratch. Mm. Um, there is nothing like the flavors that you can get by making simple stocks at home. And all it really is is throwing a bunch of different flavors of, of veggies and if you want meat stocks, bones of whatever animal into a pot, fill up with water and simmer it for a while. If it has you know bones in it, you're going to go for hours and hours of just veggies. You can make stocks like that within an hour um, the stuff that you can find in the store, in the paste and powders or in the boxes or cans, no matter how, uh, even if the, the nice organic brands, and there's some beautiful ones out there, nothing can compete with having a homemade stock. Based nothing can. Nothing. <laughs> I agree and with I'll you. I'll tell you, uh, so one thing I've noticed from students 
is the, their feedback is once they start making their own stocks. Yeah, you can't go they back. They take these suits that they've been making for years and think and are cheaper. mediocre. Yeah, it's they make them too. into gourmet. Yeah, it, it's just amazing how many people will reach for a can instead of just making it themselves. And what's interesting yeah. is that most people, when uh, even they're preparing vegetables for dinner, they'll throw away the leftover juice and just discard it uh, as though it's just waste. And, you know, that's something that you can incorporate into uh, stock. Um, just yeah, out of curiosity for our vegan listeners, do you have any recommendations for good stock? Yeah, I mean, just using any type of veggies that really that you have sitting around that are in season. The things, though, that I would definitely stay away from are any of um, the veggies that are in the crucifer-style family, which is all of your cabbages, your cauliflowers, broccolis, and the like. Because um, if any of you out there have had experience of growing up as a kid and mom would boil cabbages to death <laughs> and they would uh, taste and smell like, pardon, pardon my French hair, little baby farts, as they were called in my house, um, that's because as overcooking for long periods of time, they develop sulfur dioxide, which is just horrible smell and flavor. So you want to keep those type of veggies out of the stock so you don't give them those off flavors. And also any uh, veggies that would be really on the bitter side. A lot of the different styles of greens um, can fit into that category or, you know, other uh, bitter style vegetables that you've eaten. You're going like, ah, that's a little too bitter for me. I would leave those out. You want to kind of stick to veggies that are um, more uh, neutral or on the sweeter side of flavors and veggies that you like. There's something that you particularly wouldn't eat, then you probably don't want that flavor in your stock. That's an excellent point. And it, it's interesting. People <laughs> people tend to go crazy when they think that from scratch means you have to uh, get crazy. And, and uh, To me, when you just make things simple, I think that's really best because you're not going nuts with it. You're doing something that you're comfortable with that you enjoy the flavor of and uh, you know, it, it, it will lend itself to other recipes that you're trying to prepare at a later point. Uh, and with the stock, uh, just one word of caution, don't take stock that's that you're preparing that's boiling hot and shove it in the freezer. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> Not unless you want your uh, freezer to keep on working. Yeah, there's, uh, it's interesting when you're watching people do things just some of the simple mistakes that they make, and you're just like, okay. Um, it, it's always amusing when you're working with people that are trying to learn something or perfect what they already know and uh, watch them grow. Uh, just out of curiosity, do you teach kids at this point? Um, we do a bit of work with kids. Um, there are a few organizations out in our area here that do specialize in kids' classes. Um, but we do do work with um, a couple nonprofit organizations that deal with uh, teaching cooking to families uh, on the low, lower socioeconomic uh, levels around here. So a lot of it is is working with families, um, both parents and and the children, because you know nothing like really teaching the kids to work along with the parents um, per, and making food for the entire family but looking how to be able to shop and eat, you know, as sustainable and healthy foods as possible on low budget. So that's one of the things that we really like to focus on is, is going out there in the community and teaching everybody, no matter what type of um, economic status that you have, to be able to provide good quality food for your family. That's excellent. I mean, it's something that I think more people, especially in this day and age where the economy has been unstable for quite a number of years, and I think the positive side of that is the fact that people are really starting to pay attention to what they're buying with their money, and because it's getting more and more expensive to eat out, they can actually get more value by eating in. And choosing better quality products and also understanding how they can work with these different ingredients to uh, use them for different types of recipes and you know, be able to satisfy their families. 
Yeah, as we like to say, dining in is the new dining out. <laughs> Seriously, you know, that's what we've, we've found. And unfortunately, it took a massive economic recession for a lot of people to realize not just that they're saving money by cooking at home, but they're actually finding a new enjoyable hobby and something that really they could take pride in and find a, a passion for doing. Thank you. And Chef Mike, when it comes to uh, another subject I want to ask you about quickly is bread. Do you have any tips on making the perfect French bread? Yeah, well, first off, bread baking is not as complicated as you would think. A lot of people shy away thinking it's going to be this unbelievably daunting task. Um, one of the biggest things is to, as we were, you were talking about earlier, is measuring things properly. Mm. And, and a big part of that is using liquid measuring devices for only liquids and dry measure devices for dry. I see a lot of people taking the liquid measuring cup and trying to measure out flour in that. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> it's really hard to do because those devices are not made to yeah. level off. So a lot of people will get mismeasurements by doing that and have doughs that are too wet or too dry or just not right. So on any type of bread, especially trying to get a perfect French bread, is really starting off with measuring your ingredients properly. So with French bread, do you have any 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 uh, yeah. direction, any special yeah. tips? Well, if you want, yeah, if you want to get those nice kind of uh, bit of like chew to the outside of the crust, like on a nice baguette mm -hmm. and things of that nature, is using a little bit of steam power in the oven. And most of us do not have a steam inject oven at home. So an easy way to do this is, is one of two ways, if not both. You can always start off by putting like a shallow pan, like a little, say, um, rectangular baking pan with a little bit of water in the bottom of the oven as you start to preheat it, and that's going to make a little bit of steam. Or you could always just put a little water in a squirt bottle and spritz the inside of the oven when the bread is in there. That will help give uh, a nice kind of gelled texture to the outside of the bread and giving it that nice, you know, thicker crust with a little bit more chew in it. I have, uh, I'll admit, I have yet to find the perfect French bread recipe. I've tried every, I, I've had, I have these books that are really outdated, and I mean, just some of the instructions, I really have no idea what these people are talking about. I mean, some of the terms are, you know, <laughs> you can't even find them in an urban dictionary. They're just, it, it just uh, behooves me <laughs> how to even decipher them, but um I've tried everything from putting a saucer or a, a little um, uh, thing in milk underneath the bread to uh, – I haven't tried the squirt bottle method, but um, I will definitely try that. But French bread was always something that – the recipes just didn't quite come out as the way that I'd like them to. But, well, it uh, may also vary so much because depending on, you know, where you live, what is considered, you know, the French style of bread is a little different. Like it's, it was a huge difference I noticed growing up um, in New York, and I also lived in in the South, um, in Georgia and Alabama for a bit growing up, and then moving out here to California, just the styles of what they call like a French style bread is is a little bit different. So you know, finding that right recipe for that right texture and everything that you're you're looking for sometimes is going to take a little bit of time. I've been trying to perfect the French bread that I had in Paris, and. I know, I'm nuts, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, you're going to need them to ship you some flour and some water. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Can uh, you tell our good. audience, um, once again, the locations for both, uh, for both schools and also your website and how they can keep up with you on social media? Yeah, well, we're, we have two locations of Kitchen on Fire, both located in Berkeley, California. Um, you can always check out what we have going on, all our schedules of classes and fun cooking videos and the like on our website, which is uh, just www.kitchenonfire.com. And um, through there, you can also wind up following us on Twitter and Facebook. So we really like to keep in touch with all of our students and let them know the new hip 
things that are happening in the culinary trends around here. Thank you so much. It has been wonderful having you on the show today, and uh, it's just been great just talking about all of your expertise and knowledge, and I know that our audience definitely has enjoyed this as well. Thank you well, so much, Gina, Chef Mike. It's been my pleasure. And, folks, please pick up a copy of Chef Mike's book, Kitchen on Fire, uh, Mastering the Art of Cooking in 12 Weeks or Less. It's something that you definitely want to have in the kitchen, especially if you want to perfect some of the skills that you may have or if you want to learn something new. I mean, as I said earlier, this is like the cliff notes of culinary arts. I mean, so much wonderful information. Uh, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with your Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.